The fall of the Roman Empire is often dated to 476 AD. This is when Odoacer overthrew the last Western Roman emperor. But many argue that while this was its final moment, it had ceased to be the real functioning Roman Empire for many years. In the East, the empire lived on, speaking Latin and acting Roman for a few centuries, before evolving into the Greek-speaking, Eastern-influenced Byzantine Empire. It was still called the Roman Empire, and for the next thousand years, it was usually the most powerful country in Europe. Like the West, when the Turks finally took Constantinople in 1453, its time had long passed. The empire had been mortally wounded in 1204 by Enrico Dandolo, a man who seemed to be as old as the empire itself. This is the Almost Forgotten. everyone and welcome to the Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at great historical lives that seem to have slipped through the cracks of our collective memories. This week, episode 1.7, Enrico Dondolo, a man who helped bring Venice onto the world stage, helped lead one of the most notorious events in medieval European history, and helped bring down the Eastern Roman Empire. Enrico Dandolo was born about 1107 AD in the city of Venice, at a time in Europe that is generally considered the High Middle Ages. Venice was a local power at the time, a strong city-state with influence around its immediate area, across to Trieste, and down the Dalmatian coast. It had a powerful navy, and it was closely aligned with the Eastern Roman Empire. This was in part because their immediate neighborhood had been subject to repeated conflict coming from Western Europe. The Holy Roman Empire had dominated northern Italy on and off since Otto I, two centuries prior, but it was part of Charlemagne's empire as well. So, being closely allied with the Byzantines helped Venice achieve a good amount of independence over the last few hundred years. At the turn of the 12th century, the Byzantines had recovered somewhat from a disastrous 11th century that could have ended the empire. The Turks had established themselves in eastern Anatolia, and the western Mediterranean and Dalmatia were gone from their grasp. Various empires and emirates ruled northern Africa and southern Spain, while the Seljuk Turks ruled over much of the Middle East. Western and northern Europe were divided into many different kingdoms, including the large Holy Roman Empire. India may have had the largest concentration of wealth in the world, but it remained divided among many states. The Song Dynasty in China was possibly the world's most powerful empire, while the kingdom of Goryeo had united Korea. In Southeast Asia, the Khmer Empire was in its golden age, while Srivijaya ruled to the south. The Ghana Empire was strong in Western Africa, as was the Gao. In the Americas, the kingdom of Cusco, which would eventually unite its region as the Inca Empire, was in its embryonic stages. The Mississippian culture was in its early period in North America, while Pueblo people were beginning to build their cities in the southwest. Back to Italy, the story of Enrico Dandolo is not the story of the birth of Venice as a city of merchants and a hub of maritime trade. Rather, it is the story of the birth of Venice as an empire. The most serene republic of Venice, essentially from when Dandolo died until almost 500 years later, 
held an empire that stretched from the city down the shores of the Adriatic Sea, around Greece, and over many of the islands throughout the eastern Mediterranean. Before we go there, though, Venice. How did this unique city based on maritime trade come to be? The Stato de Mar, state of the sea, as they called it, was always linked to water. The city itself sits in a shallow, marshy bay off the Adriatic Sea, an area that actually gave us the word lagoon. Most believe that northern Italian citizens of the late Roman Empire and post-Empire fled to these small islands because they were hard to get to. Sitting in a bay, they were safe from the many invaders like Odoacer that came through Italy starting in the early 5th century. After Justinian brought Italy into the Eastern Roman Empire, the Lombards came in and conquered most of northern Italy. Venice remained within, but on the fringes of the Byzantine Empire. Though they were Western Latins, for the most part, the people wanted to remain tight with the Eastern Greeks, probably because it allowed more freedom to operate, being so far from the Bosporus. As the Franks fought to control northern Italy, Venice remained relatively protected due to its nominal allegiance to Constantinople. There wasn't enough land for Venice to create a feudal society with lords and peasants tied to the lords' estates. Instead, they took to the sea and became merchants connecting eastern and western Europe. The merchants built manors along the crowded Grand Canal and began to move goods between the east and the west. Not to say that there weren't significant class divisions. Someone had to sponsor the expeditions and profit from them, others had to captain the boats, and others had to build the vessels or man the oars. Sea voyages were never easy, but the Venetians became among the very best sailors in the world. Besides weather and waves, pirates were an issue, and around 1000 AD, Venice fought for and won control of some of the Dalmatian coast, with its numerous hiding spots for pirate ships. This not only demonstrated Venice's growing power, it reflected the waning power of Constantinople. By the time Dondolo was born, Venice was one of the biggest cities in Europe, with around 50,000 inhabitants. It was called upon to help defend Byzantium from the sea when needed, but still, were not a major power in the region. Dondolo's family, like so many of the leaders of the city, made its money as merchants, and they were highly involved in Venice's affairs. In the 12th century, Venice was experiencing a significant growth in trade. They were allowed to operate tax-free in Constantinople, and they did so in earnest, which wasn't always well received. Roger Crowley, author of City of Fortune, explains the view the Byzantines held of them. Quote, With this wealth came arrogance and resentment. The upstart Italians, with their hats and their bearded faces, were wealthy, arrogant, unruly, boorish, and out of control. Unquote. As the city grew in prestige, Dondolo's uncle became an important man thanks to his success as a merchant. And like Dondolo, his name was also Enrico Dondolo. And since this story is full of Dondolos, I'm only going to refer to the subject of this podcast as Enrico or as Dondolo. As far as his uncle, in order to avoid confusion, we'll call him Uncle Rico. Without getting into too much church politics, Uncle Rico was named the Patriarch of Grado in 1134 AD by the Doge of Venice. This was a position that made him the papal authority in the region. Venice was pulled in different directions. The people were part of the Latin church, but the government was closely aligned with Byzantium, which didn't submit to the Western Pope. 
Uncle Rico had an eventful tenure as the patriarch, and, like most Dondolos, he lived to a ripe old age. He helped reform the church and was a powerful figure in Venice. In 1147, the Normans captured Corfu, a Greek island controlled by the Byzantines, and started attacking other Greek cities. Venice was asked to assist with the defense of the empire and responded. A Byzantine empire free of invasion and plundering was one that was more lucrative for Venice's trade, and the Normans were threatening Constantinople itself. The Pope was also in conflict with the Normans, despite their religious ties, and was working together with the Byzantine emperor, who was also supporting a crusade. But Uncle Rico opposed this Venetian-Byzantine alliance, despite the fact that the Pope did not. Uncle Rico was putting his religious conviction ahead of politics. He didn't want Venice to align with the heretics in Constantinople. For his obstinance, he was exiled from Venice, along with the rest of the Dondolos. The Pope eventually supported him and excommunicated all of Venice, but by then Constantinople had been saved, so Venice was rewarded with a big old chunk of land added to the Venetian quarter in the capital. A new doge, keen to get the city unexcommunicated, rescinded the exile order for Uncle Rico. In 1149, he swore that the secular government would stay out of the church's affairs from now on, so no more doges appointing patriarchs or exiling them. But it also meant that the church was mostly done having direct influence on running Venice, although the city remained eager to keep the Pope happy. By 1151, the Dondolos were all back in the city, rebuilding their burnt-down houses. There, while Uncle Rico was a well-respected member of the clergy who no doubt held some personal influence on the leaders of government, it was his brother Vitali and our Enrico Dondolo's father who next built up the family reputation. Vitali became a judge in 1156, a position that was part of the Doge's small council. There were three judges that advised the Doge, and while the position was only held for a year, there were no term limits. Vitali was a judge for much of the next two decades, helping to reform the Venetian state. He was a highly influential and prominent member of the very highest level of the city's leadership. Meanwhile, Vitali's son Enrico has been notoriously absent from this tale so far, and it's now like 50 years since he's been born. Well, some people are late bloomers, all right? In fact, Dondolo wasn't mentioned much because he was, in essence, working under his father. Vitali was the head of the family, and administratively, Enrico wasn't technically in charge of anything. Vitali was the leader, and the sons were his lieutenants. That's not to say Enrico wasn't busy, involved in all the affairs of state, and doing important things himself, but there's little record of it. There's also little record of his wife, but we do get one snippet of information in a document from 1183 concerning some of his affairs as he was getting set to leave the city that her name was Contessa. How bad could that be? We also know that he had at least one child, a son named Ranieri, who would play a role in the affairs of state himself. And we know that Enrico did go on some diplomatic missions to both Constantinople and Alexandria, which was under Saladin's control. This was usually about making sure the Venetians living and working in the Latin quarter of these cities were being treated properly. Enrico's time to enter the spotlight came in the 1170s, when Venice came into conflict with Byzantium. Going back, in 1162, Venice's real rivals, the Genoese and the Pisans, were expelled from Constantinople. 
It may have had to do with alliances and conflict with Byzantium and Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa, or maybe the fights between the two groups in the Latin quarter of the city. Either way, it gave Venice free reign as the seagoing merchant traders in the city. That is, until it didn't. In 1170, the quarrel was settling down, and Genoa and Pisa were allowed to resettle their areas in the city. The Venetian merchants there weren't, let's say, thrilled with the idea, and went ahead and attacked the Genoese quarter. This set into motion a plan by the emperor, and on March 12, 1171, the Byzantines arrested and seized the property of all Venetians in the empire they could, over 10,000 people. Being expelled from Constantinople was more damaging to the Venetians than the Pisans and the Genoese, because they had less trade with the Arab world than their rivals did. But the doge and the judges, including Vitali, preached caution in response. The people of the Republic of Venice, however, would hear nothing of it. They demanded war, and the city built over a hundred warships and took to the sea. They visited their vassal cities on the Dalmatian coast, including several that thought the time was right to exit from Venice's orbit, and reasserted control there. They laid siege to Chalcis on the Greek island of Euboa, where the Byzantine governor assured them that a negotiated settlement was achievable. So they lifted the siege, and the fleet, which included the Doge himself, waited on a nearby island. But the emperor was playing them, and refused to see Venice's envoys. Over and over it seemed that he wanted to talk, only to delay any discussions. Meanwhile, plague swept over the Venetian camp, and its war fleet was starting to weaken. After round after round of non-negotiation back and forth, the Doge sent one final delegation which included Enrico Dondolo. This shows that he was, by this point, a well-respected and trusted member of the ruling elite. He made it to Constantinople, but it was too late. The plague was too much, and the fleet had to withdraw. They got back to Venice in May of 1172, with nothing to show for their trip but defeat and death. The Doge, who never wanted to build this attack force, but also let his opportunity to lay siege to Chalcis and punish Byzantium slip away, was killed by an angry mob. As the crowd stood over his body, they all realized they'd made a huge mistake. The result was that the power of decision-making shifted away from the people. They wanted the wise old men to lead them. So, they gave the power to appoint a doge to a select group of city leaders, rather than through public acclamation. Not that the leadership was a bunch of young revolutionaries before this moment, but the doge no longer really operated at the discretion of the people, so to speak. It set Venice up to be ruled by an oligarchy. The new doge, meanwhile, had another mission for Enrico. He was sent to Italy to scare Byzantium by negotiating a treaty of friendship between the Normans and Venice. This mission was interrupted when Enrico ran into his father Vitali. Vitali was on his way back to Venice with some Byzantine ambassadors who swore that this time they were totally ready to negotiate. Nothing came of this, so Enrico was sent out again, this time to Alexandria, to catch up with the Norman king, William II, who was supposed to be capturing the city. But William didn't succeed and had left by then. Dondolo, though, stayed in Alexandria. It gives us an idea of the state of Venetian affairs that he went there to talk to a Christian king supposedly besieging the city, 
found him absent, and still had affairs to attend to in the Muslim city. There wasn't a significant Venetian presence in the city, but there was some, and since they were persona non grata in the Eastern Roman Empire at the time, being nice to the Arabs wasn't a bad idea. It was the winter of 1174 to 1175, and Saladin was in the city. He had helped defend it. Enrico may have even been part of discussions around a treaty of some sorts between the two powers signed in 1175. Once again, Constantinople assured Venice that it was now time to send an envoy to the city, and Vitali, now in his early 90s, was chosen. Once again, the emperor said, eh, never mind, and Vitali was forced to wait, hoping to free his countrymen. He died while waiting and was buried in the city. It was 1175 AD, and Enrico was now nearing 70 years old. He finally was able to take his place as the leader of his family. He had two brothers who were also formidable, connected, and respected. His brother Andrea was serving as a judge in the doge's court, but when Enrico returned to the city that year, Andrea stepped down and Enrico took the position. Dondolo was now in the doge's inner circle. He also, around this time, began to lose his eyesight. There are many reasons why this may have happened, and some fanciful theories, but it's often blamed on the emperor from when he was in Constantinople. Thomas Madden, in his biography of Dondolo, lays out the very logical case that this probably wasn't what happened, and he probably wasn't blinded on purpose. Besides never actually meeting the emperor, he most likely was still able to see on this trip he just took. Madden even examines Dondolo's signature, which looks great early but degenerates quickly. By 1176, though, most of his vision was gone. As Madden says, the explanation given by Dondolo himself makes the most sense, that it was from being hit in the back of the head, perhaps from all the activities of being on a ship, which can affect signals to the brain, a condition called cortical blindness. Quote, While it is perilous to make a medical judgment on one who has been dead for eight centuries, the evidence does suggest that Enrico Dondolo suffered from cortical blindness caused by a blow to the back of the head, unquote. His eyes always appeared healthy to those who met him. He didn't look blind, but it seems he lost most of his eyesight within the space of about two years. In 1178, the doge was very old and nearing death and took the opportunity to retire to a monastery. The Doge's council selected the four men who would pick the 40 electors who would pick a new Doge. Dondolo was one of the 40 electors chosen, and these electors were presented to the people for approval, rather than the Doge himself being presented for approval. The new Doge, Oreo Mastropiero, was an old ally of the Dondolos, and had served as one of the other judges alongside Vitali Dondolo for many years but he did not keep Enrico Dondolo on as one of the judges, despite this friendship. This may well have been because of his blindness. He was essentially being forced into early retirement, at only 70 years old, too. Dondolo was still a community leader, and he was still a valued asset to the Doge, though, as we'll soon see. In 1182, Venice was still essentially at war with Byzantium when a new emperor came to power. Andronikos Komnenos, the new Autocrator, Vasileus had fallen out of style as the term, had usurped the throne in a wave of anti-Latin sentiment. The mob set upon the Westerners in the city, and the event, known as the Massacre of the Latins, was horrific. 
It is estimated that 60,000 men, women, and children were killed or displaced. This distanced Genoa and Pisa further from Constantinople. Venice, still relatively absent from the city, was much less affected. It isn't clear what talks were held leading up to it, but soon after, the emperor released all Venetian prisoners who had been held for a decade. He also promised reparations and welcomed Venice to again set up in the Venetian quarter of the city. The Latin area must have been eerily empty at that point, but the temptation to be the only Italian seagoing merchants there was too great, and they returned. Uncle Rico, who was still alive at a hundred years old, was in charge of the church diocese for the city. They of course had lands and properties to attend to, so he sent Dondolo's brother, Giovanni, to oversee the church's affairs there. Dondolo accompanied him, chosen by the doge to help administer Venice's newly re-established presence. Yeah, he wasn't a judge, but he was trusted and respected enough by leadership to be appointed as one of the three legates that would go and help oversee this transition. Afterwards, in 1185, the brothers returned to Venice, and Enrico Dondolo spent the next few years attending to family business. In 1188, Uncle Rico finally died at the ripe old age of a million after serving as patriarch and subsequently influencing politics and religion in the city and the region for over 50 years. In 1191, Dondolo was again asked to serve the state, and he was sent to negotiate a treaty with the city of Ferrara. It was considered a success, and this helped set him up as a man who could still be counted upon despite his age and his complete blindness. So, in 1192, when Doge Mastro Piero died, the trusted, admired, and very much blind 85-year-old Enrico Dondolo was elected as the new Doge. It was probably seen as a short-term solution. We know of some of the works of Doge Dondolo as the 12th century came to a close. He issued a decree that forced any foreigners who had been in the city for under two years to leave. Why? Well, Venice was a big city for the time, with maybe 100,000 people in it by then, twice as big as when Dondolo was born. It wasn't built on a wide plain with room to expand, so there was worry about simply running out of room. They may have also thought it would be safer, considering how well people mixed in Constantinople. His administration also reformed the Venetian civil code of law. Dondolo's civil code was in use for centuries and built upon as the foundation of the city's laws. And Dondolo reformed their system of coinage. This may not seem important, but in an era where everyone minted their own money, a few stable currencies were vital. They still used the debased coinage system introduced by Charlemagne, and as the Eastern Roman Empire declined, its coinage was also debased. This served to destabilize trade, which was not cool for Venice. Venice issued a coin that was almost pure silver, called the Grasso. It was the first of such coins to come from Europe in 500 years, and became one of the most common currencies of the continent and the Mediterranean. In 1193, Venice tried to recapture the Dalmatian city of Zara. It had rebelled many times, but was finally successful in 1180 and had remained independent. This allowed pirates to hide in its waters and harass Venetian merchants. Dondolo sent an expedition there and managed to recapture some islands in the region that had been lost, but they were unable to take Zara. 
As late as 1198, Venice signed a treaty with Constantinople promising to protect it in case of attack by the Germans. But that on-again, off-again relationship would quickly take a turn for the worse, which would lead to the eventual destruction of the Basilea Romaeum. That's, of course, the Greek term for the Roman Empire, which managed to hang on for another 250 years. But there was no real recovery from the loss of Constantinople during the Fourth Crusade. A crusade to the largest city in Christendom probably seemed a bit odd, and, well, it was. Dondolo earned a reputation over the next few centuries for orchestrating the whole thing, but the story that emerges puts him more as someone caught up in the events rather than manipulating them. So, how did it start? In 1187, a Kurdish-born sultan of a new Egyptian dynasty had reconquered much of the Levant, pretty much destroying the Crusaders' kingdom in Jerusalem. In response, the Third Crusade was launched, led by Richard the Lionheart. This one took back the coast, but was unable to retake Jerusalem from this sultan, the famous Saladin. In 1198, the new pope, Innocent III, wanted another crusade, and got some Frankish knights to help him out. In February of 1201, several powerful nobles from Western Europe arrived in Venice. They represented the crusading knights. They were from France, and from Germany, the Holy Roman Empire, and from Toulouse, and Provence, and Blois. They were the knights from the kingdoms that made up the old Francias. Otto the Great had died only about 200 years before, and they were still called Franks to many of the chroniclers, so let's just stick with calling them that. Franks, Latins, Westerners, knights. They asked Venice for the massive fleet that would be needed to take the crusaders by sea to the Holy Land to start crusadering. Dondolo and his council hammered out a deal with the knights, who presented this deal before the people of Venice for approval. Often decried as cynical merchants only caring about profits, the city was swept up in religious fervor and approved it by acclamation rather than a vote. The deal was based on the number of soldiers the French expected to be transported, 20,000 infantry and 4,500 knights, as well as squires, horses, and others who would support the army. They settled on a cost of 85,000 silver marks for the transport of over 30,000 men. The Pope wasn't paying for building all these ships. Venice wasn't going to shut down its economy for over a year for free. It would ruin them. The crusade leaders could certainly contribute something, but this was a big sum of money. The majority of the money would have to come from the rest of the 4,500 knights, who would pay their own way on Venice's ships. It was thought that Alexandria would be the best place to attack, rather than Jerusalem. Richard the Lionheart's Third Crusade hadn't been able to take Jerusalem, and Egypt seemed more vulnerable. One of the leaders of the effort, Geoffrey of Velhardoin, wrote, quote, It was secretly agreed in closed council that we would go to Egypt, because via Cairo one could more easily destroy the power of the Turks than by anywhere else but publicly it was just announced that we were going overseas, unquote. Contrary to some modern interpretations, Venice did not have significant business there that they wanted to maintain, nor is there reason to think Dondolo had Constantinople in his sights over Alexandria. In fact, he had been to both cities and had seen firsthand the weak sea defense in Alexandria as opposed to the more formidable Constantinople. He probably thought of it as a rather easy target compared to Jerusalem. 
and he probably didn't mind that, since Pisa and Genoa dominated Egyptian trade, this might get Venice a bigger share or push his rivals out entirely. Venice stood to gain significantly by attacking this city. Jonathan Phillips, in his book The Fourth Crusade and the Sack of Constantinople, wrote, quote, From the perspective of the Venetians, of course, the prospect of a dominant position in Alexandria was a truly tantalizing one. Without doubt, this was the commercial jewel of the eastern Mediterranean, and would open up the markets of North Africa and the Middle East in an unprecedented way, unquote. The project itself was all-consuming for Venice. Dondolo ordered an 18-month cessation of overseas trade. Every merchant vessel was put into the effort. Hundreds of ships were needed, and the majority had to be built, not commandeered. Including the sailors, some of whom had to be drafted, over half of all the men of Venice were involved in this endeavor. It was clear that this was not something Dondolo was taking lightly, and that this was more than simply a potentially profitable opportunity for Venice. Meanwhile, the Crusader army, which was supposed to be paying off 85,000 marks in installments, hadn't started paying a thing. Venice fronted the money for the crusade, but at least the knights were starting to show up in the summer of 1202. There wasn't room for another 30,000 or so people inside the city, so they camped on the Lido, a sandbar that overlooks the Adriatic and separates the lagoon from the sea. Venice had made enough ships, but the whole thing started to unravel as it became clear that the Pope and the Frankish counts hadn't made enough crusaders. The militant religious zealots were supposed to leave their homes for Venice in April of 1202. By July, only 12,000 of them were there. Not enough crusaders meant not enough money, and Dondolo was not particularly happy. Dondolo went out to the Lido in late summer and asked for payment. The Frankish knights collected what money they could, but did not have half of the 85,000. By the end of August, the leaders of the crusade who had promised all these people eventually gave all of their money and all that they could borrow. This got the total to 51,000 silver marks, still well shy of the 85,000 promised. Like it or not, Venice was funding 34,000 marks for this venture. So, Dondolo decided the Crusaders would have to make it up to him, somehow, and he had just the idea. Whether or not this was part of the initial plan, Dondolo was never comfortable with sending out all of Venice's fleet while Zaro remained an enemy. Venice's shipping would fall prey to pirates hanging out there, as they'd be unable to police the area, with most ships going to the Holy Land. He suggested to the Crusaders that if they captured Zara, it would be a great place to spend the winter, and Venice would allow the remaining money owed to them to be forgiven, at least until they took all that money from the Holy Land. The leadership agreed, and in early October, the fleet left for Zara. As they left, the ships included the Blind Doge, whose age is pretty reliably dated to about 95 years old. He left his son Ranieri in charge as Vice Doge, and joined the crusade as one of the commanders. Although it was built specifically to attack Alexandria, with ships designed to take on the Ayyubid dynasty's navy and transports built to land on the sandy shores there, Zara was not a big city. They arrived there in November, and Zara offered surrender. As Dondolo conferred with leadership, some of the knights who weren't in on the plan refused to attack the Christian city. 
a letter from the Pope arrived, forbidding the attack. These knights sent the leaders of Zara away to defend the city, promising they wouldn't attack. In the end, Dandolo was able to call on the oaths they swore in Venice to get most of the knights to lay siege, although a few remained steadfast and didn't join in the attack. Zara was taken, and the crusaders stayed there for the winter, until favorable seas would allow them to go to Alexandria. Except, except in January, Boniface of Montferrat, a northern Italian margravate of the Holy Roman Empire, showed up in Zara. He was the actual leader of the crusade, and he had with him a young Byzantine prince named Alexius Angelus. Angelus's father, Isaac II, was the Byzantine emperor, until Isaac's brother, Alexius III, overthrew him. Isaac was blinded, and Angelus escaped to the court of his brother-in-law, Philip of Swabia. Philip was one of the rival claimants to the German throne. Angelus befriended Boniface and convinced him to help him overthrow Alexius III. Together, Boniface and Angelus showed up in Zara, and Angelus promised 200,000 silver pieces and conversion of his empire to Latin Christianity if they would only help him regain his stolen throne. He also promised to raise an army to help with the crusade. It was a huge risk. The Venetians knew about Byzantine politics. They had seen plenty of dynastic struggles in Constantinople, and it was risky to get involved in one. But Angelus assured them that they would all be welcomed as liberators, or something to that effect. Again, Dondolo often gets pinned as the one who plotted this the whole time, and people are quite passionate about who designed this adventure. For centuries since the event, Dondolo was always painted as a conniving conniver, who had the diversion to Zara and the next diversion to the Bosporus as his plan all along. Thomas Madden is a staunch defender of Dondolo, and points out that the only contemporary view of Dondolo as an evil genius was from a Byzantine scholar who was victimized by the crusade. As for other contemporary accounts, they are his non-Venetian compatriots on the crusade. From Madden's article, Outside and Inside the Fourth Crusade, quote, Jeffrey de Villahardoan, who knew him personally, describes him as an old man who could not see but was very wise, brave, and vigorous. Robert of Clary mentions him twice as a right-worthy man. And Gunther of Pyrrhus, who based his work on the memory of his crusading abbot, praises Dondolo for his intelligence and wisdom, unquote. This is neither the description of a definitive crusader taken up by conversion fever or that of a lout. A smart man whose understanding of real politic allowed him to succeed as events unfolded before him? That might be the best description. Anyway, Dondolo didn't dream up this whole crazy thing. It was a proposal brought to him by the Frankish leaders of the crusade. Many of the knights did not want to go, but their leadership was on board with it. It was Dondolo who needed to be convinced. A friendly Eastern Roman emperor, 200,000 pieces of silver, and the holy mission of restoring the rightful church in the East was too much to resist. Dondolo signed up. And so, in the spring of 1203, the Crusaders, led by knights and a nearly 100-year-old doge out on assignment, took off from Zara, not to Egypt, but instead to Constantinople. 
They sailed along the Greek shoreline, popping in to introduce Angelus to his people along the way. Everyone living weeks away from the capital with little military support was super nice to the new emperor and his massive navy and army of thousands. So Angelus was totally proven right about the whole rightful ruler thing. Actually, there were already signs that this wasn't going to work out well. In Corfu, off the western Greek coast, they were barred from entering the city, and the local bishop remarked that the only thing that should give Rome primacy over the Eastern Orthodox Church is that the Romans were the ones who killed Christ. Dondolo, I believe, called it a, quote, sick burn, unquote. They left Corfu, and on July 23rd, they arrived outside of Constantinople, which must have been a mind-blowing sight for the Franks. According to Thomas Madden, you could fit the 10 largest Western European cities within its walls. Dondolo advised that marching against the city's impenetrable land walls was probably not the way to go, them being impenetrable and all. He counseled to take the nearby islands and set up camp. The leaders of the French knights were young, many in their 20s. Dondolo was not a warrior, but he understood the importance of supply lines and being able to hold out in case of a long siege. The fleet sailed up past the city and landed at Chalcedon right across the strait from Constantinople, which was the city where Mithridates the Great destroyed Cotta's navy and began his disastrous siege of Cyzicus. They gathered food and moved up the Bosporus to Scutari. There, they waited for Angelus to work his magic. And they waited. For over a week, they waited for the city to respond to their true lord and master. But nothing happened. They weren't besieging the city, so it must have been quite a curious sight. People were able to go in and out. Heck, some of the Venetians may have been hanging out with their family members who lived inside the city. And there was no sign of anything happening. Directly north of the city was the Golden Horn, a waterway that was calm with a safe harbor as opposed to the fast-moving Bosporus. On July 5th, they decided they had waited long enough and attacked a neighborhood across the Golden Horn from Constantinople. There was a tower there, and Dondolo knew that if they took that tower, they could destroy the chain that protected the harbor, and that's just what they did, subsequently taking the harbor. The knights still wanted to attack the walls from land, so the Venetians let them. But Dondolo knew they should go to the sea walls. On July 17th, they tried to take Constantinople. The Franks were met by the Varangian Guard, mercenary Vikings with axes, and were repelled. The Venetian boats, with towers attached, were having trouble as well. But Dondolo, in an effort to rally his troops, had his command ship rowed right up to the shore, His men followed after seeing this. I will remind you that he was blind and older than a Mel Brooks character at this point. It worked, and the Venetians took the walls and got into the city, but they had to retreat from the experienced Greek soldiers once inside. They started some fires, which turned into the burning of entire sections of the city. The Venetians were able to hold the walls, but they had a barrier of fire between them and the Byzantines. So the Byzantines turned, and brought a massive force out to meet the Franks by the land walls. These crusaders were in real danger of being obliterated, and Dondolo abandoned his position on the seawalls to provide relief. This may have been all that Emperor Alexius III wanted, because although a battle seemed imminent against a much smaller crusader force outside the city, he withdrew. 
his small strategic victory regaining the seawalls looked like a massive failure, letting the crusaders off the hook, and the people were not happy. Alexius was in trouble inside the city now, with a real possibility of being overthrown, so he fled. The elites of the city crowned his brother, Angelus's father, the former emperor Isaac II. They opened the gates, and the crusaders had taken Constantinople. Angelus was crowned co-emperor on August 1st, and he paid the crusaders 100,000 marks, half of what he had promised. Angelus then asked Dondolo and the crusader army to stay until next spring to help defend against Alexius III's return. He said, quote, You must know that the Greeks hate me because of you, and if you abandon me, I will lose this land and they will kill me, unquote. They agreed to stay after the promise of more payment, and the knights went to go track the former emperor down. While they were out, a mob took the opportunity to riot and attack the remaining Latins. Pisans, Amalfis, and Venetians who had lived in the city fled to the crusader camp, but a few of them returned and set fire to a few houses. This spread quickly throughout the city and caused immense damage. The Forum of Constantine was destroyed, as well as a large section of the city between the Golden Horn and the Sea of Marmara on the other side. 15,000 Latins ended up fleeing across the water to the safety of the camps, and things did not get better from there. Angelus, now Alexius IV, from the safety of the palace, informed Dondolo that he wouldn't be able to pay the remaining silver marks. This was basically declaring open war. It led to constant raiding and another coup. Another Alexius, Alexius V, took over and tried to negotiate directly with Dondolo. But Dondolo was in a position of power. The Byzantines were in trouble, so he demanded the other half of the original money, plus, you know, converting the whole empire to Roman Christianity just like Alexius IV promised. Also, release Alexius IV and we'll tell him to be lenient to you. So, with the negotiations going nowhere, Al V had Al IV killed, which probably convinced the Crusaders that they'd really have to attack the city again if they wanted their money. The old Doge prepared his troops for another attack, and in March of 1204, he conspired with the other Crusade leaders to figure out how they'd rule the empire if they took it. An attack they did in April. There were some setbacks and defeats, and they had some discussions of just getting going to the dang Holy Land already. To Venetians, many of their ships, private vessels of merchants who hadn't been trading in like two years, weren't about to leave without getting some of the money they were owed. Eventually, they did take the city, for real this time. The next part of the story, you might want to avert your eyes. To say Constantinople was looted would be like saying Dondolo had a few years under his belt. Just imagine the treasures of this city which had been perhaps the richest and maybe the most important city in the world, at least in Western Eurasia, for eight centuries. No doubt it also had items that were brought over by those leaving Rome when power shifted east, and more when Justinian retook Italy and there was no doubt where the Roman capital was. You might be talking about 1,200 years of artifacts and treasures. Those four giant bronze horses outside of St. Mark's Basilica, the symbol of Venice, Yeah, we don't know exactly when they were made, but they may have been around since Constantine's time, or even earlier, in Rome. Dondolo sent those back to Venice. The invaders marveled at the sight of Justinian's body, which supposedly had not decomposed for 700 years because it was in an airtight tomb. And then they cracked the tomb open to steal anything of value. 
Ancient imperial artwork and Christian relics, some over a thousand years old, were stolen, but most were probably just destroyed or melted down for the metals. Needless to say, many were killed, and the attackers, sacking what had been the greatest city in Europe for the last three quarters of a millennium or more, became quite wealthy. The empire itself was now under control of the Westerners. Today, this is known as the Latin Empire. The fleeing Byzantine leadership created the Empire of Nicaea on Anatolia, and they eventually recovered Constantinople in 1261, over 55 years later. But they never did regain the power they had before the Crusade, and eventually were overrun by the Turks. As for Venice, they purchased Crete from the new Latin Empire and were awarded the western portion of the empire, including western Greece and modern-day Albania. Dondolo also sent his nephew to secure the many islands of the Aegean Sea, as the Genoese were swooping in to try and take advantage of the chaos. His nephew did take the islands, in the name of the Latin Empire, of course, but these were so closely aligned with Venice that they eventually became vassals of Venice itself. Dondolo took a ton of money and treasure for Venice, and he secured exclusive trading rights, but he did not try and turn it into a vassal state. At one point, in early 1205, when the Crusaders were out fighting and trying to keep their new empire intact, Dondolo was the only leader in the city. But when the Crusaders tried to take the nearby city of Adrianople, they ran into trouble, and Dondolo went out with troops to fight. He was now maybe 98 years old, running toward the thick of fighting. The Byzantines, with some Bulgarian help, had defeated the Latin army handily. With real fear that they would not be able to escape, they turned to Dondolo, who orchestrated a Dunkirk-like retreat. They got to a small city on the shore after a few hard days' ride, and eventually made their way back to Constantinople. The battle on the ride did not do Dondolo well, and his body was unable to hold up to the rigors of these latest events. He ended up dying from a hernia which led to a blockage of his intestines in May of 1205, at nearly a century old. He was supposedly buried in the Hagia Sophia, although there is some evidence that casts doubt on that. After his death, his son, Ranieri, stepped down from acting doge once they had elections. But Venice was not the same place as when Dondolo was born. Adding to their spoils from the Fourth Crusade, in 1205, Zara negotiated a peace settlement with Venice, pulling them into the city's orbit. They had a real empire now, stretching from Venice northeast along the Adriatic shoreline around to Turin, down the Dalmatian coast to the southwestern tip of Greece, with many islands in the eastern Mediterranean under their control as well. Venice got all the power, wealth, headaches, and wars associated with this empire. They grew from being one of the more wealthy Italian cities to a major power in Europe, despite not holding significant lands, at least in terms of square miles. They were heavily involved in European and papal politics, a rivalry with Genoa, and wars with the Ottomans. The Ottomans eventually gained the upper hand for good in the early 1700s, when Venice lost any hegemony outside of its immediate region. Napoleon put a final end to the most serene Republic of Venice, dividing its territories between France and his rival Austria under the Treaty of Campo Formia. Dondolo's time as Doge was completely transformative to Venice and the whole of the Eastern Mediterranean. Thomas Madden, who wrote Enrico Dondolo and the Rise of Venice, had this to say about him. Quote, 
He stood at the center of events that transformed the Republic of St. Mark into a maritime empire and fundamentally altered the Mediterranean world. He was also blessed with a colorful character. When elected to the Doe ship, he was already in his 80s and completely blind. Nevertheless, he remained a man of vigor with a sharp intelligence and plenty of practical wisdom, unquote. Further, he says, quote, Although Enrico Dondolo would long be remembered as a hero in Venice, not everything he accomplished was welcome or wanted at the time. In the end, the enormity of events would force the Venetian government to extend its reach into the Aegean, thus transforming Venice once again, now into a maritime empire, unquote. Enrico Dondolo had been born into a family of prestige and power, but had not taken a significant role in the politics of the city until he was nearly 60 years old. But after that, he spent more than the next 40 years turning the wealthy city-state into a true European power and managed to bring down the Roman Empire in the process. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, you can find maps and pictures for this episode and the others on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions or comments, please do email me at almostforgottenpodcast at gmail.com. And you can find me on Twitter at the almost forgot, no forgotten on that one. If you enjoyed this, please do go to iTunes and rate and review the podcast. It is much appreciated. And please join me next time when we move east to Southeast Asia to see the rise of another powerful maritime empire based on trade. Thanks again for listening. 